All right, Jeremiah 31, and let's start in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What an amazing, amazing series of promises. I just love Jeremiah 31. I think it's an incredible section. We're going to hone in, and we could spend an entire conference probably on this section, these four verses, but we're going to hone in specifically on the promise where God says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What does he mean by that? Well, the first thing we need to address is what he's talking about here is obviously a new covenant. And that new covenant is the covenant that we are in. That's the covenant that we are in today, right? So testament means covenant, right? So you have the Old Testament. It's talking about the Old Covenant and you have your New Testament. It's talking about the New Covenant and we are New Covenant Christians. That's where we find ourselves. And what's unique about the Old versus the New Covenant is in the Old Covenant, there were some people that were in the covenant, but they didn't know God. They were actually a part of Israel, they were actually a part of this covenant people, but they didn't spiritually know God. And people had to go to them and say, hey, you need to know the Lord, right? And, and he's saying something's gonna be radically different about the new covenant. And that's that everybody that's in the new covenant, the youngest to the oldest, the least faith to the greatest faith, all of them will know the Lord. That, that's a promise. All of them will know the Lord. This text is a big part of the reason why I don't think we should baptize babies. The people that are in the covenant are the people that know the Lord. The people that uh, have tasted and seen that he is good, that have, have experienced God, so to speak. When he's talking about knowing him, I don't think that God means knowing about him, right? I don't think he means that the people that are in the new covenant know some facts about him. Oftentimes when the Old Testament used this word, knowing someone, it's a profoundly intimate word profoundly intimate, oftentimes reserved for marriage, okay? When he's talking about knowing him, he means knowing him intimately and personally in a relationship. There is a massive difference in knowing things about God and knowing God. And what he's saying is everyone that's in the new covenant will know God. Jonathan Edwards tries to explain it this way. He says, thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that has never tasted honey, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. 
So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about, I think. I think that's what Jeremiah is talking about. He's talking about not just having an opinion that God is holy, but having a, a real sense of his holiness. Not, not just knowing, okay, I read in my Bible, the correct answer, is God patient, true, false? The correct answer is true, right? No, no, you, you've tasted of the patience that he's shown you in your life, right? You know he's patient because he's been patient with you. Okay, he's talking about a real knowing of God and knowing God, knowing God in this way is far and away the best thing that anyone can have in this life. That's the testimony of the scriptures. That's the testimony of godly men and women that have gone before us over and over and over again. I think about a Philippians 3. What is Paul's aim? What is his hope? What's his deepest desire? It's that he would know God. He counts all other things as rubbish compared to that. Just compared to knowing God. Knowing God is the greatest end. It's the greatest thing for us. In a sense, this promise, um, this promise is one of the sweetest ones that we're going to talk on in this whole conference. I'm eager to slow down and chew on it with you. I'm eager to slow down and, and just re- rejoice over it with you, okay? It, th- there's a sense in which um, everything in your life is a pursuit of a certain kind of knowledge, Okay, I, I don't want to take this too far, make it a hard and fast rule, but go with me here. There's a kind of sense in which this is true. So if you're going to college, which most of you are, uh, in order to make a lot of money, why do you want that money? Well, it's so that you can know what it's like to be able to buy whatever you want, right? You know what it's like to have security in your bank account and not to be afraid of bad things happening. You want to know what it's like to be able to have that big house, right? It's you're, you're actually pursuing a certain kind of knowledge there, okay? Or let's say you're going to college because you want to get married, okay? That's, that's real, okay? That's, not, that's fine. <laughs> Don't want to dog on that. You're going to college because you want to be married, right? You, you, want, you want to know what it's like to be married, right? You want to know what that's like. That's the reason you're going to call. That's the end thing. You want to know what it's like to have somebody to come home to and not have to say goodbye at night after you've been on a date. You want to know what it's like to share life with somebody in that profoundly most intimate of human relationships. It's, it's pursuing knowledge, right? If you want to have kids, right? It's, you want to know what it's like to have kids and to laugh at them and throw them in the air and see them grow up and then you die and they take care of you, right? You want to know what that's like. <laughs> No, that's what I think about, man. (laughs) I seriously am. I'm telling Aspen. No, no, it's fine. No, not a depressing way. I'm telling, I tell Aspen all the time, like, well, she's a little too old for this. I tell my younger kids all the time, listen, I'm wiping your butt now, but you're going to wipe my butt later. That's what I tell (laughs) them. I'm serious. All right. You'll see. You'll see. Give it 50 years. You'll see. But the point is, right, the point is all of life is pursuing after a kind of knowledge, okay? There's a sense in which that's true. And if that's true, I don't know about you, I, I want to pursue the, the highest and greatest knowledge, and that's certainly God, right? It, it, it would be better to be single all of your life, never know what it's like to get married, and to have a more profound knowledge of God. I think that's what Paul's saying when he talks about singleness in in Corinthians, right? It it would be better um, if it means, uh, having kids means less knowledge of God, right? Uh, It would be better to have, not have kids, okay? And to have profound knowledge of God from that than, than to have kids, right? One is actually better. 
Now, I'm not saying that you can't know God more by being married. You can. Okay, I'm not saying you can't know God better by having kids. You can and you do, okay? I'm just saying propositionally, knowing God is the best. And so you should choose that over any other thing. This is what J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Since I don't have slides, I should read that again. Okay, I'll read that again. What makes life worthwhile? Or what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher and more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? And here's what's so amazing about Jeremiah 31 is it's a promise. All of them, from the least to the greatest, will know me. Isn't that that amazing? Oh, man, the gospel is just so good. It's better than you think it is. Jesus has purchased you more than you think he has. He has purchased us this the most exalted knowledge, this knowledge of God. Now, I don't think Jeremiah 31, when it says they will all know me, I don't think he's saying there that they all will know the Lord to the same extent, okay? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be saying that he presses on to know God more. I, I think there is more of knowing God that we can have. And because I believe I'm speaking to Christians, I believe all of you that are in Christ, you do know God now. You've tasted and seen that he's good, right? You've had a sense of his sweetness, more than just a proposition, but he's actually won your heart and you've seen his beauty and you really love him. And here's what I want you to know. There is a kind of knowledge of God that Christians before us have known that few of us really know anything about. This is what Spurgeon says about it. He says, there are common frames and feelings of repentance and faith and joy and hope which are enjoyed by the entire family. That's that knowledge of God that everyone knows. That's what he's affirming there, Jeremiah 31. But there is an upper realm of rapture, of communion. This is Charles Spurgeon, okay? I'm not, this isn't Bethel, all right? Charles Spurgeon, all right? <laughs> there is an upper realm of rapture of communion and conscious union with Christ, which is far from being the common dwelling place of believers. All believers see Christ, but, not, but all believers do not put their fingers into the prints of the nails, nor thrust their hand into his side. We have not all the high privilege of John to lead upon Jesus' bosom, nor of Paul to be caught up into the third heaven. In the ark of salvation, we find a lower, second, and third story. All are in the ark, but all are not in the same story. Most Christians, as to the river of experience, are only up to the ankles. Some others have waited till the stream is up to the knees. A few find it breast high, but a few, oh, how few, find a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. One example of somebody who found it to be a river to swim in that they cannot touch is Sarah Edwards. 
So I quoted Jonathan Edwards a second ago, and his wife's name was Sarah Edwards, and she was meditating on Romans chapter 8, fitting, and she found herself in this just such a confident assurance that she was known by God and loved by God, and her salvation was totally assured, that unshakable, that she had just such an incredibly sweet sense of it that this is what she says. When I was alone, the words came to my mind with great power and sweetness. They appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God. And as words which God was actually speaking personally to me, I had no more doubt of it than I had of my own being. That's that's what I mean about fighting doubt. I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's love seemed as durable and unchanging as God himself. Melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears. The presence of God was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious of anything else. And if you go and you you read Jonathan Edwards' memoirs, it, it's, it's, kinda, it's just bizarre to read it. It's just bizarre to read her experience. This is just a tiny snippet of it. But you just go and you read it, and it's like she's in the throne room. It's like she's in the presence of God, and she's filled with rejoicing nonstop. It's just this amazing thing. She knew God, right? It wasn't just this propositional thing for her anymore. She was really tasting and seeing that he's good. You know what? Is that, am I making, am I making sense? Okay, that's what's promised to us in Christ. And it is the highest and greatest knowledge that you can ever attain to, that you could ever, ever, ever attend to. And this is actually, pursuing that is how you live a well-lived life. Okay, Uh, guys, people have known this truth for 6,000 years, that a life well-lived is a life spent pursuing the transcendent. Okay, you can go to random animistic tribes in Papua New Guinea and they'll tell you, yeah, of course that's true, right? You can go throughout all history. People have been worshiping made up gods, right? People have been doing all kinds of things. Why? Because they know there's a wisdom in seeking something beyond themselves and seeking the transcendent. This has been an obvious fact for all of human history. And it's only our um, unintelligent, almost use a different word, unintelligent selves in the last 200 years or so that have said, oh, that's all baloney. Well, that's insanity. We consider ourselves wise, but really we're fools, right? Uh, I don't need a transcendent thing. I don't need to know God. I can, make, I can make purpose for myself, right? I can figure this thing out for myself. I can live for my own comforts. I can live for my own pleasures. I can do my own thing. And you know what that leads to? A, a radically wasted life. Every time. We all know this, right? A life spent fulfilling your own fleshly desires is a wasted life. A wife spent in your mom's basement eating Cheetos and watching Wheel of Fortune is a wasted life. We know it's just a fact, right? That's tragic. That's tragic. But seeking something transcendent, even in a sense if you're misguided, is less tragic than that, right? Right? Like there's this guy named, uh, I think his name, Ernest Shackleton. I forget his last name. And and you know what he did? He wanted to take a group of people from England down across Antarctica and up the other side. That's what he wanted to do, okay? 
there's a sense in which he was seeking something beyond himself, something bigger than himself. He was seeking to be the first one to explore these lands and do something incredibly difficult, right? And it was going to be incredibly difficult. They didn't have heaters and things, right? They were on a ship, okay? And he put out, you know, this message, hey, I want to do this. Anybody want to do this with me? And thousands of men, thousands of men responded, sign me up. Why? Why? Man, I I think it's probably because we're desperate for purpose. We're desperate for meaning. We're desperate for our lives to count, right? And it kind of seems like if I travel across Antarctica, my life will count then for some reason. I don't know why, right? I'm I'm seeking something beyond myself in that. And, and, And there's a sense in which I think that's true. By the way, they didn't make it. Horrible things happened. If you can go read that story, um, most, most of the people survived, okay? <laughs> uh, seeking the transcendent is the way to a meaningful life. And, and it's insane that we've totally jettisoned this idea. And I think we're actually seeing all the fruit of it now. And I actually think people are starting to wake up to it, right? Like, um, this is a stat that just blows my mind. 60%, apparently, 60% of teenage girls in America today um, report feelings of depression, right? Like they're, they're reporting, yeah, depression, yeah, that describes me, 60%. M- more than not, more than not are depressed and hopeless and feeling like they want to die, right? Now, some of you guys are not that much older than teens. I think this is like three or four years old, which means you were teens when it was done. And if that's still true of you, you know, most of you women report feeling some symptoms of depression. Now, hopefully because you're Christians, that, that might not necessarily be true. I'm, I'm not trying to say and being a Christian means you're never depressed, but that, that just blows my mind. Suicide apparently was the 11th highest leading cause of death in America. I think this was in 2019. And how do we think we should cure it? What's our nation say? Maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe, 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 we've gone, maybe we've taken a wrong turn somewhere in the enlightenment process. No, that can't be right. Let's just give them some medication. That's got to be what's going on, right? That's insanity. It's insanity. No, what's wrong is people need something to live for. What's wrong is people need some hope in their lives, right? What's wrong is people need to know they're not just a meat suit walking around that's meant to live and die and do whatever makes them feel good in their lives, but there is something that they can give their life to and seek that's beyond them, that matters, and that is important. And in Christ, guys, we have that in spades. We have the knowledge of God. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we've been promised this, okay? If we've been promised this knowledge that gives all of our life meaning and value and purpose, if we've been promised this knowledge that is, uh, there's joy forevermore in this knowledge, how then should we respond? Well, there, okay, there's a principle here for us, for us to take, and that is every time we get a promise, like Jeremiah 31, the scripture, it never, it's like the scripture category just thinks differently than we do. They, the writers of the New Testament just kind of think, they thought differently than we do. We hear, oh, it's promised, great, I don't need to do anything, right? They heard, oh, it's promised, awesome, now I have the courage to go after it. 
That, that's kind of how they thought about it. Let me read. Let me, let's go back to kind of our anchor text for this whole, um, this whole series. Second Peter chapter one says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Do you see that? What's the for this reason? What's the connection? What's he talking about? He's talking about the promises. Listen, what's he saying here? Because you've been promised this, because it's guaranteed, because it's been given to you, therefore make every effort to run after it. Does that make sense? That's the way the Bible talks. That's the way the Bible thinks. That's the way you, when you are transformed in the renewal of your mind, that's the way you'll think too. You won't think, great, it's promised, so I don't have to do anything. You'll think, this is promised to me? Yes, I'm going to go after it. Or let me read to you 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 18. It's the same thing. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1, chapter 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see that? Because he's promised, let's run after it. That's the way I want you to think, right? Because he's promised it, I'm going to run after it with everything I have. So here's, here's the argument that I hope drives you into seeking God for the rest of your life. Number one, God exists. Okay, can you nod if you agree? Do we agree? Okay, good, everybody agrees. Number two, he promises that if you seek him, you will find him, okay? You seek me and you will find me when you seek after me with all of, my, all of your heart. Everyone who asks, you know, if it's, uh, finds, the one who knocks, the door is opened. If you seek, you will find, right? It's a promise from Christ, okay? So number two, he promises that you will find him if you seek him. Don't actually nod if you don't believe this now. If you believe that, nod your head. You will find him if you seek him. Okay, fewer nods. And then number three, there is nothing better than finding him. Nod your head if you believe that. Okay, good. Now, if you can believe these three things, God exists. He says that if I seek him and I seek him with all of my heart, that I'll find him. He says that I will know him in his promise baked in right here in Jeremiah 31, right? He says that I will, I will know him. It won't be wasted effort. And then number three, there is nothing better than finding him. If those th- three things are true, I don't see any logical response other than to settle it in your heart and in your mind to seek after God with everything in your life, right? Like if you don't believe one of those things, then yeah, it makes total sense not to do that. If you don't believe in God, then yeah, don't, don't seek after him. If you think it's gonna be wasted effort, you might give your life and not actually find him. You know, yeah, maybe take the easy route and eat the Cheetos, okay? I, I guess I can understand that. Or if, if you think that, uh, you, you know, finding him won't be that great, then yeah, maybe you shouldn't seek him. But if you believe those three things, that I think the only logical thing to do is to devote your life to powerfully seeking after God in all that you do. 
There's a passage that I think illustrates this really well in 2 Chronicles. See if I can find it here. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 16. A little bit of background here. Uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the, the kingdom just split from the two of them. And Rehoboam is trying to consolidate his kingdom. He, he wants you know, everyone to worship him. He doesn't want them to go back to Jerusalem because he's afraid they'll leave his kingdom if they do that, right? And so he sets up anybody that wants to be a priest. Like, you want to be a priest? You want to be a priest? You got no training? You're not born of Levites? I don't care. Come be a priest, right? And he sets up the high places for people to worship so they don't have to go to Jerusalem to consolidate the power. But there were some godly people that said, I'm not going to do this. And they left and they went to Jerusalem. Let's read about them. So 2 Chronicles chapter 11, this is verse 13. It says, And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all the places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so the Levites that were in the other um, 11 tribes and the lands that they had, they left those. They left behind their lands because they didn't want to sin by worshiping at the high places and came to Jerusalem. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers." I'm going to read that verse one more time. Those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. What does it look like then? What does it look like to set your heart to seek God? If you really want to know him, Right, You really want to know. You don't want to know about it. You want to know God. You want to know the knowledge of God that passes understanding, the same as Paul wants in Philippians 3. You believe that you'll find him, or at least you're willing to try. Okay, And then you really believe that he's there. And so you settle it in your heart. What does this look like? Well, number one, what do we see? It says, those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them. This is implying that there's a moment in their life where they actually made a decision to do this. There's a lot of people that are in the land and and the dividing thing between them is some beforehand, before the trial had come, before the hard thing had come, they had settled it in their hearts that they were gonna seek God, whatever that meant. And the people that didn't do that, right? They they didn't leave that land. And so question number one, that's the first question I have to ask you, is have you actually settled this in your heart? And more than just asking, I actually want to call you to a decision tonight. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe the scriptures or no? Do you believe that he says all those who seek after him will find him, that it is part of the new covenant promise to know God and that knowing him is better than life, that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? I know you do. I know you believe the scriptures. If you believe the scriptures, then you need to settle it in your heart that the rest of your life is going to be about seeking after God. And you need to make that decision even tonight. 
Tonight might be the most clear your eyes are, right? When you leave here, you don't get more clear-eyed. You get more distracted by your phone and your job and your work and your family. This might be the most sober moment of your life. Have you settled it in your heart that you will seek after him? Have you had a moment like that? If not, then tonight, settle it in your heart that you are going to seek after God. Here's how you can, here's, here's a sense how you can know. Here's a little test. Like, I think I have. Here's, are you just swimming through life? Whatever you're supposed to do is the next thing you do. Okay? Are you just kind of swimming along and you're supposed to do this, so you do that. You're supposed to do that, so you do that. Okay, the greatest job comes along, so you take that. Okay, the, uh, per, you know, this is the person that everybody thinks you should marry, so that's the person you marry. This person makes you feel this way, so that's what you do. Is, are you just kind of floating through life based off what makes you feel the best? Or have you settled it in your mind that you're going to actually live a convictional life and you're going to make decisions that are actually sometimes really, really difficult, but they mean you might actually get more of God. That's what they did. What's the fruit of settling their hearts to seek God? Guys, they leave their inheritance. You think about what that would have meant to a Jew? This is the land that God gave them. This is the land. When they're in that land, that's the blessing of God upon them, so to speak. The curses of God are to leave that land. You're leaving behind your inheritance for your kids. You're traveling in a way that's incredibly violent and dangerous around people that uh, you leaving, you're condemning them just by leaving. And so they're probably not going to be happy with you, right? You're bringing your kids and your family and you're leaving behind all these things. You want to say that wasn't difficult and hard and strange? And everybody else that didn't set their heart to seek God, right? What's the easy thing to do? Well, I can worship God here as well as there. God's everywhere, right? Well, I get a little more land now. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. I'll take that. Do you see that? Not settling it in your heart to seek after God means that when it comes to making big life decisions, which by the way, you're all doing as college students, like, you know, they're coming, you know, where am I going to live? Where, what job am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? That's coming. And if you haven't settled it in your heart that you're going to seek God, you're just going to take the easy way out every single time. And you're going to be just like all those people that stayed behind. These men were commended. They were commended. Look at verse 17. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. They were godly men. They were the ones that God, uh, I, I think, is looking for. They are the men and women of faith. For three years, they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked three years in the way of David and Solomon. If you don't settle it in your heart to seek after God, to not just take the best job, to not just marry that person that makes you feel the best, but no, no, if you filter all the decisions through your life, uh, all the big decisions of your life of I'm a man of God that's seeking after God, how will this affect my walk with God? If that's not the first thing that you're asking, you're you're just gonna get tossed along with the whole rest of the world down this track, down this hamster wheel of success, and then you'll die. And you'll look back and you'll see there was no transcendent purpose in any of it. But if you believe that God's word is true, then you will filter every big decision in your life through this filter. Does it glorify God? And guys, here's the, here's the other thing. <laughs> like these guys, in, you know, I, I don't even know how much scripture they would have had. I think they would have had you know, at least Genesis, right? I think Moses probably wrote that, bringing them out, out of Egypt. But, but they, it's, they, I mean, obviously they didn't have most of the Bible. Obviously they didn't have the New Testament. Obviously they didn't have the prophets. 
They didn't have Jeremiah 31. And if these men are willing to seek God, even though they didn't have the profound clarity of the promises that we enjoy today, oh my goodness, how how much more guilty will we be if we have God's word sitting in front of us, if we have the promises that we'll see him and we'll know him and we'll find him, if we just seek after him, if we say, nah, not interested. These men will put us to shame that they sought God in a relative state of darkness and we were so faithless, we weren't even willing to seek him with all of the light and knowledge that we have today. No, if you're seeking after God, you'll make all of your decisions, even hard decisions through this filter. How can I seek after God? What's the next thing? What else does it look like to settle it in your heart to seek God? What does it look like to be the kind of person that believes the promise of Jeremiah 31? The person that believes the promise of Jeremiah 31 will join themselves with other godly people that are seeking Christ and they will hold fast to those people. What do they do? They join up with the Levites, the Levites that are leaving. They're the priests. They're the pastors of the time. They're the ones that know and love God, and they're the ones that are seeking God. And so they join up with them, and they're getting out of the godless land of Jeroboam. They're leaving that behind. If you're seeking God, what you'll do is, just I, I don't say this to promote campus fellowship. I say it because you're here. These are the people God's put in your life. You'll link arms with the people that you know are seeking God probably in campus fellowship, and you'll say, you're my people. Who are your best friends? Are they Christians? Are they seeking God? Do they love God? Who do you spend the most time with? Who are the people that you've linked arms with and said, I'm doing life with these people as long as I'm with them? Men and women that are seeking after God will do that with other men and women that are seeking after God right? They'll get it. They know. They want to have singleness of vision. This is what I'm going after. This is what I want. This is who I want to seek. And the people that don't have that kind of mindset that are seeking all kinds of other things, it'll, it just won't be right to join yourself to them, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But the man or the woman that's pursuing Christ will want to join themselves with other people that are seeking Christ. And here's what I'll tell you guys. It's just been one of the most profound blessings in my life to yoke myself to the body of Christ to bond myself to brothers and sisters and say, I am with you. If it means I don't get as good of a job, I'm with you. If it means that, you know, we're, we're going to have to work through conflict, I'm with you. Why? Because you're seeking Christ and I love you and we're going to seek Christ together. And I can't tell you the blessings that that's reaped in my life. The times where I've been despondent, I've been discouraged, I've been doubting these very promises of God that we're talking about. The times that a brother or a sister has come with a timely word that's just lifted my spirits are too many to count, right? Men and women that are seeking after God will join themselves with other men and women that are seeking after God. This is what 2 Timothy 2.22 says. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have you done that? I hope you have. Number four, what else? What, what do people that have settled it in their hearts to seek after God, what do they do? They read, meditate, and pray on God's word. Many of us, I think, have a lot of knowledge about God. My guess is most of us, if, if I could give you an option, you can take everything you know about God and it can turn into a real knowledge of God. Or I'll double the amount of knowledge about God that you have right now. My guess is most of us would choose the former. 
I think if you're sane, you would, okay? In other words, we have plenty of knowledge about God. We live in the information age. I think what's lacking largely in our churches is real knowledge of God. Again, this is J.I. Packer and knowing God. How do you go from knowing things about God to knowing God? How do you do that? He says this, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Does that make sense? It means you take all these things that you know about God and they're gifts, they're good things. Don't despise the fact that you know a lot about God. That's a good, good thing, but take it and settle on it and sit out in a rocking chair and look at the mountains and meditate and chew and pray and think on the fact that God loves you or meditate and chew and think or pray on the fact that God has patience towards you or meditate and think and chew all these things that you know about God and sit on them and rest on them and cling to them until God comes and makes them alive in your soul and you taste the sweetness of it rather than just knowing it uh, as, you know, in an abstract way until you really experience some communion with God. And make no mistake, Jeremiah 31 is telling us that this is a sovereign gift of God. He's saying, I will do this. That's the whole point of Jeremiah 31. It's why Jeremiah 31 is good news. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to teach them to know me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. This is why Jeremiah 31 is such good news. So don't miss it here. Don't, don't forget it. All of this knowledge of God is actually always a gift from God. If God is infinite and if we are finite, then we can never, by our own strength, climb some kind of spiritual ladder to gain knowledge of God. He is infinitely far away from us. He is infinitely transcendent. But what's glorious about Christ is Christ has come down and also made God infinitely imminent, infinitely with us. And he knows God and he is able to reveal him to whomever he pleases. This is what Matthew eleven twenty five says. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who's doing the hiding and revealing about the very character and nature of God? It's, it's God himself. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And, this is wonderful, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So make, make no mistake, right? In all of your prayer, in all of your meditation, in all of your pleading, in all of your reading, what you're doing is the same thing you ought to be doing when you're listening to a sermon, which is you are pleading with God to do something, to open your eyes, right? To cause you to see, to heal you so you can stand up straight, you know, to raise you from the dead. These are all sovereign works of God by his sheer mercy that he does. He reveals the knowledge of God to us. We place ourselves, we use the means that he's given us, and then he does it. And guys, that's actually good news because he's willing to do it. He says, if, you know, he says, once again, you ask, you seek, you knock, and it will be revealed to you. He says, everyone who seeks after me will find me. Let me address one doubt that I find people tend to have. Let me just remove it out of the way for you. Jeremiah 31 is not for me. 
Let's read it, right? What's it say if you're still there? What does he say? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. How many of you guys in here are the house of Israel? You should have raised your hand. Never, never mind. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In the house of Judah, right? Who's it, who's it with? Who, who's the new covenant with? Oh, man, it's the house of Israel. Are we toast? Are we in trouble? Here's why my answer to that is no. My answer to that is no, to no, specifically for this text, is because Hebrews 8 explicitly applies it to the new covenant that's inaugurated by Christ. This is what Hebrews 8 says. He's talking about Jesus as the high priest. And then he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. Sound familiar? I'm gonna skip ahead. I'm gonna skip ahead. And this is what he says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. He's saying that these things are new and they're now and they're for you and the old is passing away and the new has come. And and none of us would say Hebrews is only to the Jews, right? Hebrews is to believers, is to all those that are in Christ. Or look at Ephesians 2. What does Ephesians 2 says? It says that at one time, you Gentiles, you were strangers to that promise. There was a time when you were a stranger to it. There was a time when our ancestors were strangers to it, right? I see a lot of white people in the room, our northern ancestors, right? Our Germanic ancestors, a lot of them, they were strangers. They were worshiping Thor and Odin and all these crazy things. And they were absolutely strangers to that promise. But this is the wonderful thing that Christ did. At one time, he says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. I almost wonder if, he's even, if he even has Jeremiah 31 in his mind when he's writing that. At one time you were having no hope and without God in the world, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When you believe, when you have faith, you demonstrate yourself to be a child of Abraham. You're an Israelite by the promise, which is what all true Israelites are. And you are an inheritor of this very promise. And that's incredibly good news. That's incredibly good news. It means that you will know God. You will know God. And because you will know God, it means that you should seek after knowing God. And so here's my closing argument. Here's, here's the last thing I want to leave you with. And, I, and all of this, if you haven't figured it out, I'm trying to fan into flames your hunger for God, your desire to seek him. Here's the last thing that I'll leave you with. What did Christ do? The statement is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came down from heaven to seek and to save the lost. If Christ came to seek us, so to speak, And if he was willing to suffer tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, tremendous hardship to seek and to save sinners, what traitorous friends would we be if we don't return the favor? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? 
Like if your friend is just like awesome and they're always buying you Chick-fil-A and then the one time comes and they don't have their wallet and they look at you and you're like, nah, you're a bad friend, dude. Like I, that's just one. Man, what traitorous friends would we be to Jesus if he came to seek and to save the lost? If we don't in turn seek him with our free evenings, seek him with our free time, seek him with our hearts, seek the greatest thing on the earth. If we can't bring ourselves to seek that, oh God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Let me close with just these few passages. This is Psalm 27, four and eight. It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And then Acts 15, verses 16 through 18. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Guys, it's a promise. It's the promise of God, communion with him, intimacy and knowing him. It's a promise. And so I hope that you settle it in your heart tonight to seek after God. Amen.